fall now, and yes, this is a time of transition, and the next six weeks, we are going to talk about, basically, the vision that makes us tick as a church. What is the motive that we would say we have big dreams? You know, when you hear Dima say, there, is, there, are, there are dreams that we have here. It's not just dreams, it's vision, and we feel like there are things that God has put upon our heart that we feel called to do, and we want to be able to speak to the foundation of where those, that vision and dreams come from. And so today we begin a series called Creating Space, Expecting Harvest, and, and to know at the heart of that, where we're going to be. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. As you're turning there, I just want to uh, highlight a few things about how special transitions are and, and particularly this day. When I walked out of the office modular this morning, there were people that were in great anticipation for this day. You could see it all over them as they were walking in the doors, their anticipation for this day as they were wearing Eagles attire. I, I can't relate to that passion or that love, but I can relate to loving football. I will probably take some time to watch some football this afternoon. I do enjoy football season. In fact, I'm a little bit, um, if you were to ask my family, especially after last night, I might even be a little bit sick in how much I enjoy watching football. We're coming back from the West Shore, having been at a, a friend's party, a birthday party last night. And as we're driving back on the turnpike, uh, we were kind of testing back and forth between my son and I's knowledge about who went to what college and so on. So I decided to test and challenge my son to giving, naming a quarterback in the NFL and me saying what college he went to. I missed one. And then we went into second string quarterbacks and third string, and I knew a lot of them, uh, not all of them, but I was able to get it. And, and so then we started going through multiple players and positions, and I knew a significant number of them, and my son finally just said, You're there's something wrong with you. <laughs> and I'm looking at my wife, she's just shaking her head like, so much needless information <laughs> in your head. Yes, I... I, I <laughs> Uh, that, that amen was from somebody I spend my time working out with. I'll, if you ask me to spot the weights for you this week, I'm dropping them on you. Anyway. But, um, you know, there, you can tell somebody's passions and what they love by what they know and what they give their time to. So if you go up to a complete stranger and you're trying to get to know and you're making small talk. You're looking for something that you know is common ground or that they love. For those that have gotten to know me, they know that one of the possible ways to connect would be baseball because I've coached it for several years. I played it at, when I was in high school and, uh, and I enjoy the sport tremendously. So people know that that's an easy way to connect. Some of you might even know I love to golf. And, uh, and so you might talk about that. But you want to get really deep inside of me. Offer the opportunity to go out and get a good steak together. That is something I absolutely love, having grown up in Kansas where meat was the primary uh, diet out there. And, and so I love a great steak and seasoned just right, which is why when I was at this place called the Carnivore in Johannesburg, South Africa, that just serves all these different types of game meat, I was just like heaven on earth. When you love something and you get to be a part of it and it 
fills the room with the aroma of the smell of steak. Oh, there's nothing like it. How many of you might have been here in this room a few years ago when I actually grilled steak up here on stage on a Sunday morning? How many of you are here in the room? If you don't remember this, this is a, a, something that happened is that as I was grilling the steak, this side of the room smelled it first. And then eventually it got to this side, but it was that back corner over here that, that got it the odor last. But, but it was this aroma that was permeating. And, and what I learned from that little experience is that this side of the room gets what I'm talking about every Sunday before this side of the room. Amen. <laughs> Amen. So, and that's, well, and this side of the room is weighted down because of my workout partner anyway, so. But, but no, you, you get this idea that it's like, when you like meat, you can tell when somebody likes meat by the response to the smell. Oh, that smells really good. That first day of spring that's really warm and nice and people are firing up the grills. Those are the perfect nights to go on a good walk. You can smell what they're making and it just, it does something to you and it gets you excited because you love it so much. The same way, there are certain aromas that, that cause me to, to just be enamored with a particular season. And one of those seasons is Christmas. And I love to go into the candle shop down at Intercourse, Pennsylvania that, that just smells like Christmas. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you walk in, it just has that, uh, that Christmas aroma, all those scents that, that, that are burning with those candles or, or that are in there. And it just causes me to be in a season. And, and I then get just like, I am so passionate about this season and I, I get very much into it and I love it. I even love, yes, I say this every year, I even love when my wife has these Hallmark movies that she gets to watch every year and occasionally I'll sit down and enjoy it with her. I, but there are just other things that I enjoy and that might be, I'm extroverted, some of you might relate to this, but I love hanging out with people. That's where I gain my energy. Meanwhile, others of my family would say, I love people, but I need my time to fuel up by myself. But for me, I love being with people, and it gives me energy. Notice I'm saying I love baseball, I love golf, I love watching football, I love a good grilled steak, I love the Christmas season, I love hanging out with friends, but notice the difference when I say this. I love my children. I absolutely love my children. I would give my life for my children. I would do whatever I could to cause them to live and persevere in this life if I could give up everything I had to make that happen. There is something about your love for children that would cause you to do anything possible to make sure that they are well and they are growing and thriving in life. But I can even take this even a little deeper. When I say I love my children, I'm committed to their success but it is nothing like my love for my wife. And when you go through cancer, and you realize that life is precious, and you don't know what the story might be, that can either lead to fear gripping you and you become angry or disenchanted. Why did this have to happen to her? Or your love becomes just a little bit sweeter and you discover that you're asking 
different questions. You're prying a little deeper, making sure that the hearts are unified. You're making sure that she is well in all facets of herself. You see, love for a spouse is probably about the most intense love a human being can experience. And when something happens that begins to awaken the full aspects of just how much you do love an individual, it can be one of the most rewarding times of life. So when I say I love sports or I love certain types of food, and yes, I love being with people, there is nothing like being able to say, but I love my wife. It just goes deeper. There's something about when the Bible says that when, you, when a husband and wife come together, they become one flesh, they become one together. That reality is part of the understanding and gives us a little glimpse of what the oneness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is like. That love is precious. But as I say these things about what I love, Every single thing that I love is impacted by what I love, what I'm about to say next. Everything I do by how I love things, how I approach my life, how I love on my children, how I love on my wife is affected by the greatest love relationship I have. And that is, I am here to tell you with all the, the absolute transparency I can offer, and that is, I love Jesus Christ most. I love Jesus Christ most. He is the one that has changed my life. He is the one that helped me know how to love my children best. He's the one that helps me know how to love my wife well. And he is the one that helps me know how to live this life well. I love Jesus Christ most. When you hear somebody say that, that I love Jesus it might conjure up different responses for those of you here in this room, depending on what kind of relationship you have with Jesus. For some of you here in this room, Jesus is merely a, a man that you know historically is worshiped by Christians around the world. You might be here because you're simply trying to understand. Maybe you were invited by a friend to be here. So Jesus is more somebody you know about than somebody you know. Others of you, you've known Jesus a long time. You've grown up in a home that taught you about Jesus. You, your parents love Jesus. Your, your grandparents love Jesus. And you would say, I love Jesus. And so when you hear somebody saying that, you resonate with it. Others of you could tell the same story, except for when, I, when you get around somebody that says, I love Jesus, it exposes a relational disconnect that you're currently experiencing. So many of you could say, yeah, I love Jesus, but I don't know that it would be something you'd hear me say. It's probably not what it used to be. Yeah, I love Jesus, but it's not the love that would be most obvious to any other people that know me well. Because for you, maybe that statement of I love Jesus is more of a historical context in your life, not a present reality. So my question is this. Do you love Jesus most? Is he 
the greatest thing in your life by which you know how to then love other people and that you know how to place in value the things in your life. Do you love Jesus when I say that, that it causes a resonance inside of you that says, I love him too. For those of you that might say that is still mysterious to you or it's long in the rear of your mirror uh, since you could say I love Jesus with passion, let me walk out just how that might happen in a person's life. And maybe it'll draw back to you moments in your life where that was a reality for you. How does one even begin to be interested in a man that they can't see, a man they can't hear, a man they can't smell, but only a man they can read about. How is it that somebody's attention is even drawn to an invisible figure? Well, usually there's something that provokes the attention that says, oh, there's something different there. There's Jesus somehow in some kind of manifestation in, in the way somebody lives. And, and this is the passage, excuse me, that I want to go to in 2 Corinthians. So if you could open there. Uh, again, we're going to be in chapter 2, and I want to read starting in verse 14. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, and he's giving them a picture of an idea of how life can be for them. And, and he says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma that brings death. To the other we are an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? We don't peddle the word of God for a prophet. On contrarily, we speak as Christ before God with sincerity so that, those, uh, so that we are being sent from God. So what Paul is saying here is that if your life has been transformed by God, then God finds it full of pleasure inside of him when your life begins to stink of Jesus Christ. He wants your life that when Christ is, is truly in you and you're in love with Jesus, that there is a permeation of Jesus in you that your life begins to smell the same. Last night I was at a bonfire. And when you sit next to a bonfire for any length of time, your clothes begin to smell like the bonfire. You get out of those clothes when you get home, you throw them in the hamper, and you get into bed, and you realize your hair smells like a bonfire. And I got into bed, I could smell that my wife smelled like a bonfire. The aroma of the bonfire was upon us. You, wouldn't, you could have been in another state when we got to that bonfire and arrived in time, met us, and realized we had been at a bonfire. You get my point. If you've been near Jesus and Jesus is upon you, then when somebody gets near you, you're going to smell like Jesus. And when Jesus is permeating your life and, and somebody is around you, they're going to begin to show, give off a smell, an aroma of Christ that is pleasing and it says, what is different about you? There's something different and it causes questions to be asked. Paul's saying that basically, when you are the aroma of Christ, then no matter where you go, those who know Jesus and those who don't know Jesus can smell you. And it brings about a question. 
Peter said it this way. He says, live your lives so well among the unbelievers that they may see your good works and glorify the God in heaven that they don't even know because there's something different about you. You see, our lives should beg to question, why do you smell the way you smell? Why are you the way you are? Why is it that, that no matter where you go, it feels like this is something that seems otherworldly beyond you? You see, I think what you see in this text is that when Paul says that Christ has made this triumphal procession and uses us then to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him, Jesus' strategy is this, is to stink you up and make you smell so that others smell you so that it points to him. You can write that down, by the way. <laughs> Jesus literally wants you to smell of him so that it causes other people to say, well, you must have been with Jesus. Or what is it that's making you the way you are so that they can begin to ask and engage? So when somebody talks about their story of how they ever fall in love with Jesus, there's usually somebody in their life's journey that smelled of Christ and caused them to draw in and try to understand who Jesus is. Made you question, well, what is that? And I would like some of that, please. For me, without a doubt, the aroma of a person's life that affected me more than anybody else was my parents. They lived out life for Christ like I had never seen in anybody else. They truly sacrificed daily living for Christ and loving on people. They made life's decisions based on their love for Christ and it was evident to me and my sister as we watched them living this out. They made some difficult decisions because they loved Christ. But because they loved Christ and it was so aromatic about them, Others that love Christ would come into our home as well. And it was just a constant door of people coming through that we got to know that love Jesus. And it impacted me greatly. But it wasn't until I was 16 years old that I was able to experience what it meant to have your life completely permeated by the aroma of Christ. Yes, I gave my life to Christ as a seven-year-old seven where I understood the gospel and I gave it, but as a seven-year-old, I didn't understand all the lordship and living for Jesus and all the difficulties of the decisions that come with that or to live by the Spirit of God on a daily basis. I didn't understand that. But when I turned 16 and I was in that year, life dealt me a plenty of things that all of a sudden I started understanding what it means to live for Jesus. God impacted my life through my parents and the observation and then all the others that, that came through our house that, that loved Jesus. And some of those people, if I said those names of some of those people, you would know them because they've written books. They're now pastors of large churches or they're pastors that are seen on TV and, and, and you would know their names. And they went through my house when they were just 20-something-year-olds going on the road talking to teenagers about their love for Jesus. And now you know them as great pastors and leaders in our country. When you get around people that smell of Jesus like some of those people, it impacts you. When you smell it, you know it when you get around it. And it's like an odor that you smell in one place. And you could go 20 years without smelling it. If you smell it again, you're immediately drawn back to the moment when you first smelled it. It's an amazing truth and reality about our bodies. 
Well, as I got around these people who loved Jesus and the aroma of Jesus' life was upon them, it became very evident to me, those who truly love Jesus, and that's what I wanted to aspire to once I gave my life to Christ fully. For some of you, you can point to actual people. You say, Man, it was this person. It was a Sunday school teacher. It was a pastor. It was, it was my parents. It was a friend who lived out Jesus and caused me to begin to ask questions and inquire about what is this that makes you tick? Why do you smell that way? Some of you maybe found yourself at a place you didn't expect and then you hear this message about a God who loves you so much that that God sent his son to die for you and when you hear that story about a God who loves you so much that he would actually give up his son so that you can come into relationship with him that you were blown away by the story of that and you surrendered to the message of that good news. Romans chapter 10 verses 14 and 15 says this, how then can they call on the one they believe in How can they call on the one they believe in if they've not heard? How can they hear them without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Then it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Man, I gotta hear so many incredible communicators bringing this good news message that I believed it even when I wasn't following it. But I've watched many people that did not have much exposure to the gospel, that when this message was heard for the first time, they immediately were able to understand and see and responded and gave their lives to Jesus and experienced a complete transformation and having new relationship with Christ. How many of you, then when you would say that, you know, it wasn't until I saw my parents living out their faith, but it wasn't until I was reading scripture one time that I was able to finally understand, and it just came alive like fire inside of me. Romans 10, 17 says this, consequently, faith comes from hearing and the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Oh, how many people I know that it was just a reading of a passage of scripture that God just used to drill them or to punch them in the gut, to wake them up and they see, oh, there's a God who loves me and he wants to change my life. For others of you, that love relationship with Jesus didn't happen until you hit rock bottom. You hit the lowest point in your life. You see, that's really kind of where mine began is I hit my most depressed point in my life at age 16. And, and I, the way I felt about myself, the way I, I considered my, how others thought of me, it had caused me to go so deeply into depression that I became suicidal. I was at my low point. When I realized that God was calling me to live, and to not just live, but live life to the full, I had to have something that would draw me out of that deep, dark point. And you know what it was? It was hope. It was the hope that Jesus could indeed change my life and could indeed give me the life that I was seeing modeled in my parents and all these other people that I've been exposed to. That I could then truly see that my life could be that even though I felt like there was no way I could ever be used of God like I saw God using my parents. 
A passage in Hebrews reminds me of how I felt in that moment. And it says this, God did this so that by two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of this hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters this, this inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become this high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Basically saying this, that when you have been radically affected by Jesus Christ, you now have something to hold on to that becomes an anchor in the midst of a storm. Let me tell you, the last four months would not be the same if I did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have an anchor that we have held on to of hope. And it's found in Jesus and his promises. That no matter whatever our storyline's going to be with my wife's cancer, it was going to be to the glory of God and in hope that he would use it to bless other people. When you're in the storm, you cling. Because you don't want to be blown away. So you hold on to that which is most secure. And if you fall in love with Jesus and you've hit that low point and you fall in love with Jesus, you discover that holding on to him is the one thing that drug you out of your despair. I went from being fully depressed in the spring of my junior year of high school, or sophomore year of high school, to being fully alive and filled with joy and being a total different person by the fall of my junior year. In a four-month window of time, my life completely shifted. And it was built on one thing when I decided to cling to the hope that can be found in Christ. So why do I love Jesus? It's because when I had no hope, he became hope for me. Why do I love Jesus? It's because I've seen what he can do in people's lives. I saw what he did in my parents' lives. I see what he's done in others' lives. I see what he's done in my life. And it's like, how can I not love Jesus? So how then does this love grow? Well, <laughs> I have found that, that as I journey with Jesus in life, there is a lot of things that can break you. There's a lot of things that can cause you to be hindered. But the one thing I found is true, that if I choose the paths of Christ, I will find that there is freedom by walking in his ways versus trying to do it on my own. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, this veil that kept you from understanding anything about Jesus, understanding anything about God, this veil that kept you in darkness and, and in, in doubt and disbelief, this veil is taken away when you turn to the Lord. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who, all who have unveiled faces, they can now see this, can contemplate the Lord's glory, are being then transformed into His image with an ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, when you come into a love relationship with God, and through Jesus Christ, He gives you the Holy Spirit, and He begins to change you. And the further you go along in that journey, the more you begin to look just like Jesus. And when you look like Jesus, you're going to find that there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. Because you always have an advocate, that high priest Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, advocating on your behalf as a good priest would. And then you can then know that, that whatever is permitted through him in that relationship must be for your good. And, and that he will be with you even if it gets hard. 
And then you also know that, that because he was already given up so much to purchase you, why would he not do so much to keep you in a loving relationship with him? So I trust him with my life and I find that as a result, I get freedom. Then when if I choose to live for myself, I find that I end up in bondage. When you live for yourself, you only discover that you end up alienating yourself from everyone else because it's all about you. When you choose things that are basically what the world values, whether it be sports or academics or career, money, or certain types of relationships, you'll find that if that is all the substance of your being is, that those things are fleeting. But when there is something that is always there regardless of storm or that which is a beautiful day, when Jesus is that anchor, you then discover what true freedom is all about because there's no regret, there's no shame, there's only hope, there's only faith, and there's only trust in the one that makes everything straight for your feet. Jesus gave you life. By giving up his life. In John 10.10 it says this. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have life to the full. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So he contrasts. This is Jesus' words. He contrasts. He says, listen, the enemy of your soul wants to destroy you. But I want to give you a life that makes it full. Rich and better. You know, the last four months, as I, I've shared it, it could have easily had an impact upon us that would have caused us to be hopeless, downtrodden, and, and quite frankly, depressed or discouraged. But what I've actually found, as I was talking with friends I hadn't seen in years last night, what I actually can say with true honesty is I have discovered a greater sense of peace during the last four months. And that the relationship that I have for my wife and the love I have for her, I now appreciate it all the more. And the joy and the freedom that we now have in the way we're talking with one another has been worth the challenge. I wouldn't wish this upon ourselves, but I will say this. Our relationship with each other is better for it. And I'm being honest. I couldn't say that if I didn't have Jesus at the center of my life. We have clung to him, and as a result, we pray differently. We have actually been much more intent in praying for many here in this room that are going through the same journey, or are, it, have friends or people you love that are going through the same journey of, of sickness or illness, and, and it's caused us to be much more hopeful and understanding that God is a loving God, even when life gets hard. I can say with greater clarity today than I could back in March when we got the diagnosis, that I love Jesus. And he did not punish us for whatever is going on in our lives because it's become physically hard. That is not a punishment. What we've discovered is that he is showing his love even more greatly through our journey. Some of you believe that when things get hard, that you think that God has all of a sudden turned on you. That couldn't be more further from the truth because then that causes you to run. Guess who's just entered in there? The thief has come in to steal, kill, and destroy and he wants to destroy your relationship with Jesus who loves you. Paul 
experienced this to the point who, you know, again, Paul's life, he was whipped and beaten several times for, for advocating for the gospel. He was stoned several times for the sake of the gospel. He was shipwrecked multiple times for the sake of the gospel. He had been whipped multiple times for the sake of the gospel. And yet he said this in Philippians 1 and chapter 3 of Philippians. He said, I would give up everything in life Everything in life that has been for good or for bad, just for the sake of knowing Jesus more. He realized that when you pale everything away, to know Jesus more would be the greatest pleasure in life. And then he even said, I would give up my own right to know Jesus more for the sake of others knowing Jesus more. How does somebody get to the point where they're saying, I love Jesus so much and he has changed my life so much that if, if I could give that up for the sake of a whole multitude of people coming to know Jesus the way I know him, I would do it for their sake. That's not even human thinking. But that's what happens when Jesus changes a person's life. I want you to turn to Revelation. I said I wanted you to, to have that kind of ready, but Revelation chapter 2. John, the Apostle John, who had walked with Jesus, was very near and dear to the heart of Jesus, had been given the privilege of seeing a vision that was about the future, and much was revealed to him. And in the beginning of this book, as part of that vision, God gave him some very specific words about some churches that were in existence in John's time. Listen to what God says, Jesus himself saying about the church in Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance, you Ephesians. I know you as a church cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, you church in Ephesus. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So, Jesus speaking about a church. I mean, think about it. This church had done much to do good. They had actually persevered in being able to do hard work for the name of Jesus. Yet their hard work for Jesus was done in distance from him. They worked their way from his leadership in their hard work because it was like, well, let's impress Jesus by how hard we work. Then it says that they had zeal for truth and holiness. Yet, somehow in their zeal for truth and holiness, their zeal for knowing the word of God, their zeal for living out a, a life that's responsive and submitted to the word of God, they, that zeal did not translate into zeal for Jesus directly. Their love for him. It just became a matter of legality. Can we not see that in our culture? Where... What was meant to be life and freedom has now become a set of rules. And, and, and the truth and the holiness that was meant for us has now become just more about the legal, legal aspects of doing right rather than truly having a passion for Jesus. 
I mean, that's why our county is pursued as a place to tour, is because they want to watch religious Christians operate under certain rules that are different from culture. But what about the passion for Jesus? The church in Ephesus even suffered hardship because they were walking with Jesus. They actually were experiencing martyrdom. Maybe they'd had their houses taken from them. Maybe they even lost jobs because of their relationship with Jesus. Yet he says, this I have held against you. You've done all these things, but you do not love me like you did at first. We can see how this plays out in marriages where the, the love between a husband and wife is so intense in the beginning and, and, they're, and they're giving of themselves so sacrificially towards each other. But over time, somehow, the love grows cold. It's not that anything was intentionally led that way. And it wasn't like they stopped working. I mean, there's still provision being provided or there's still all the tasks they've divided up and, and they're doing and they're making sure the kids are, are fed and are growing up and so on. But meanwhile, the love is growing cold. They haven't done the things that they did at first that nurtured to say how much they love each other. The same thing can happen in our relationship with Jesus. We can go down the line of, of living out a Jesus-like life, but not knowing Jesus. We lose our passion and our love for him. And, and it's not the same. It's not the vibrancy that if I was to go around this room before I'd ever started today and say, tell me, do you love Jesus? And, and, and you were to say, yeah, I love Jesus. Some of you just be just, you know, matter of fact. And it might be true. But there are some people that when they say, I love Jesus, it's said differently. It said the difference between saying I love a good steak versus I love my wife kind of difference. I love Jesus versus I love Jesus more than anything. And yet Jesus is saying here, <laughs> you've done all these things, but you stopped loving on me the way you did at first. And so in verse 5, he gives a couple of constructive things where he says, let's read it again. It says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent, which means to change your thinking. Change what you were doing before. Change that thinking and do the things you did at first that made you fall in love with him. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, moving that light that he says is upon you. When you give your light to Jesus, he puts his light upon you as a light that draws people to it. In the same way that when Jesus comes upon you, you become that aroma. So not only is it visual light, it's also the smell of Jesus' uh, life in you that draws others to him. He says that if you don't stop uh, pursuing away from me, but just doing righteous deeds, I'm going to remove the light from you. So what he basically says is go back and do the things you did at first. That's what his advice was to the Ephesians. And so what I would encourage you to do, if your love has grown cold for Jesus, then I would encourage you to act as if you didn't know who he was and go back and reread his story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books of the, of the Gospels that tell us the life of Jesus and relearn his heart, relearn his vision, relearn his passions, relearn his teachings. Be re-enamored 
with the life of Jesus once again. Secondly, not only going back and falling in love with Jesus by reading his story over again, but also go back to a place before Jesus when you were hopeless. Remember how you felt. It's not a bad thing to go back and look and say, you know what, I remember when I was hopeless. This is what I felt. And you can identify four or five things and just like, I didn't like how I felt there. I don't want to go back to that. And then when you relook at it as those are the things that were, and then you begin to see how Jesus took away that hopelessness and provided hope, guess what's going to happen to you? Your love is going to intensify. So if you're reading about Jesus' life over again and reacquainting yourself with him, you'll get enamored with him. And then if you realize what you used to be and you contrast it to what God has done in your life since, the hopelessness that you had before is no longer you, but you now have hope. Your love is going to be fanned into flame again. And I'd also encourage you to do this. There is nothing more exciting and exhilarating to get around somebody who's on fire for Jesus. So if you know there's somebody near you that is in love with Jesus, draw near to their side. Get near them. Interact with them. Let the aroma of their life be the stink upon yours. Let what you're around become upon you so that as you go around, then people begin to smell of the aroma of Christ upon you. There's nothing more exciting than going on a retreat like the men are going to go on. We're hoping for our ironing, sharpening iron, a salt upon salt, that, that by being together, there will be a sharpening. There will be a, an aroma that will be upon us that will come back to our homes and our relationships and will be forever different. Ultimately, if you're enamored with Jesus again, you remember the hopelessness you used to have and you, therefore you become grateful for the hope you now have. And if you draw near to others who are in love with Jesus, this love will then lead you to a place that's like, Lord, lead me once again. I remove my hands from the leadership wheel and I let you lead once again. And as a result, your life will change. And as what we've looked in the text, if your life changes, the aroma of your life will affect others.